use my axe. I'm hungry! Welcome to episode 12 of Get to Work Hurley, the podcast for anyone who has ever been frustrated by the professional writing life. I am, of course, your host, Cameron Hurley, and in this episode, I have something a little different for you. I delivered a keynote speech at the Sirens Conference this year in Vail, Colorado. That was back in October. It wasn't recorded, so I put the speech as written online, but of course you know how that goes. It, it doesn't have the same sort of feeling, and of course there are all my witty and genius asides that were missing. Most importantly though, folks really seem to find what I had to say about storytelling our way to a better future really valuable. What I found is that folks right now are looking for a reason to persevere and keep going. And perseverance is something I think a lot about this time of year uh, in the face of these overwhelming odds. I, I really feel that it's especially important as, of course, we head here into the holiday season. There's this yearning for hope and for inspiration in in particular on this timeline. Uh, and, and it really struck me, I think, back in April when I was doing a mini book tour in Spain, which is this most pretentious thing I can think of saying, but it was really cool. I had never been on what I would consider a foreign book tour, but what ended up happening was um, the Celsius Festival, which is held in Avias, Spain uh, each year. It's a really, really excellent event run by some excellent people. And they invited me out and my Spanish publisher, they've published Stars Are Legion and Geek Feminist Revolution, and they had just picked up The Light Brigade. And they said, hey, you really need to do this. It's a really great festival, really great organizers. And while you're here, we'll set up events uh, in some of these these other cities. So what they, they did was they worked with the Celsius Festival and we held an event in... Madrid and Barcelona and Avias. And it was it was kind of amazing because when we went and we did the event in Madrid, they had actually set up uh my publisher and Celsius, Celsius my publisher, um, they had set up a like press junket. <laughs> like we there were like probably six or eight or ten interviews with different magazines and things around Spain, uh, me various media outlets. And they would bring, you know, they, they brought me into this little room and we had little snacks and things. It was, it was really surreal for me. And um, uh, Diego Garcia Cruz was my uh, wonderful translator. And it was amazing. He would, he would translate like in real time to me as people were speaking. And uh, he's an amazing person with a really great, some really great talents. And I, I was really sort of blown away and overwhelmed. And what ended up happening was after the first couple of interviews, I realized I was getting some of the same questions because, of course, the Geek Feminist Revolution came out in the U.S. in 20, I want to say 2014, 2015. And it had just come out in Spain the this year, I think, earlier this year, late last year. I don't know. I can't keep all these books straight. I think once you get like 10 books in, it's like, I don't, I don't know what the fuck. I kept getting this question. And I said, hey, at the end of Geek Feminist Revolution, you are very hopeful about the future. After all of the things that have been going on uh, in the in the world, in the US, um, in the UK, uh, Spain had actually just kicked out their fire right government. But of course, they had their own issues still going on. And they said, are you still as hopeful as you were? at the end, you know, when you finished Geek Phones Revolution a few years back. And I said, I am still hopeful because uh, I realized that this is a backlash against the prog progress, right, that we've made. 
that said, I do understand that historically, when we look at the historical record, it will be some time before we actually get over this, right? We, this, this is, nationalism is a, a plague on us and it seems to come up again and again whenever we get, and during times of great change, when we all get freaked out, we want to blame somebody um, for all of our problems. And it's like, well, climate change is everyone's problem. What has made humanity survive is actually that we work together. But anyway, and I said, historically, it takes 10, 20, sometimes 30 years for us to get over these nationalist waves. And the the faces of these, it was usually women who uh, did these interviews and that just their faces were just so bereft. They were <laughs> so upset. And I said, well, that's historically. And I kind of walked it back because I realized, right, I realized they really wanted to hear hope from me. I mean, I'm just Joe Blow, whatever, but everybody puts you kind of on a pedestal and, oh, you know, you're a great thinker, you've written a book. And so they they take what you've said much more seriously than if you were just some somebody on the street. And so I kind of walked it back and I said, well, listen, historically that it's taken this long, but this has been building for 30 years. It's finally bubbled over. And I think the speed at which it seemed to bubble over uh, had a lot to do with social media and the internet, how interconnected we all are, the speed of communications. So I said, it is quite possible that with the speed of communications today, we could see a, a shift, right, to a more hopeful future. <laughs> Within five, ten years, that that is possible. But this is, nationalism is something we have to deal with and we haven't really dealt with it. We haven't acknowledged it and admitted it, uh, especially here in the U.S., and so we never got rid of it. I mean, we've we've been – Reconstruction never worked uh, after the Civil War, and we never dealt with our problems with racism, and that has to be dealt with before we can actually build a Star Trek future. Once I realized what all these, these folks were asking, I would I, – I sort of – started to talk more in that vein, like we can, we can do it. <laughs> we can do it. Cause I knew that's what they wanted to hear. And I do believe that right at the core, but, but to do that also requires a great deal of hopeful narratives, hopeful storytelling, hopeful actions. And all of those things need to lead to actions, to actual f- changes in people's, the way people see the world and, and people's behaviors. And people, of course, ask, well, well, how the fuck do I do that? And especially, you know, then as now, it, you know, it, it, it's been another special week out there in the wider world. But I'm still here. You're still here. We're still here. And I say this to myself every morning now. Maybe that's because I'm also getting older on this timeline. Maybe it is the breathless pace of this news cycle. The Friday news dump just drives me crazy. And and maybe the burden of knowing more of what's happening in the wider world than any previous generation really did. Whatever the reason that I'm here and you're here, as long as we are here, we can help create what comes after us. And again, that's super important, especially the darkest time of year. I am not a religious person because I, I have to be able to see and touch in here and, and sense things in some way. I have seen lots of dead things and I'm like, death seems like an end to me. And if you are dead, if you decide not to go on or you are hit by a bus, you give up control, right? You have no more way to create. You have no more way to influence the world. And it is my belief that... I would like to be here as long as possible to influence the world in as much of a way as I can, which is why I always bring this up, especially during the darkest time of year. You are needed for this timeline. You are needed on this timeline to help create what comes after us. So how do we do that? As both a science fiction writer and someone with some historical training, I do think a lot about the future. And mostly I think about that future by looking at the past. Still not sure if that gives me an edge or if looking backwards for too long is going to like sour my grim optimism for the future of humanity. Because I grew up in the 1980s, which was the era of Central American wars, liberation movements across Africa, the Cold War, the incendence of Reaganomics, and the AIDS crisis. The rich got richer, right, in the 80s, and and the poor got kicked out of public health and welfare institutions, 
it was a really dark time. You know, when you cut that that top tax bracket, which is what, you know, Reaganomics did, he cut from, I think, 80% to 50%. Something has to give. And just like then as, as now, what was given up was social services. It was the humanity that the government is supposed to uh, deliver to us. And it was a dark time. And I knew that even as a child. And it really forged my interest in war and resistance and these dark science fiction dystopias that I tend to write. But even then, I fervently believed we'd improved upon the past. I did believe that. I believed we could keep improving. <laughs> Logic, I figured. Logical, right? Human beings are completely logical. Would overcome our baser, socially warped programming that led us to fear the other, uh, the hoarding of wealth and, and you know, also led to Ayn Rand. Uh, what I realized these decades later is that humans, in fact, are not swayed to change themselves and their beliefs and their attitudes, their societies. They're, they're not persuaded to do any of that based on logic. We are creatures of absolute and pure emotion. It's been found that people who have damage to the part of their brains that processes emotions can't make decisions anymore. I mean, they can tell you, oh, logically what they should be doing, but they have difficulty deciding stuff like what to eat or what to wear. Do they want an apple or a banana? It turns out if you have no emotional reason to choose one over the other, apple or banana, you actually find yourself unable to decide. You just, it, your brain just locks up. And smart negotiators understand this. If you have ever, as I know well, if you have ever tried to argue with someone on the internet bringing with you like all the facts and all the figures and thinking that will win over the other side. Well, you've seen this phenomenon in action as well, right? And I, I actually just read a study that said, in fact, when you present facts and figures to someone who is absolutely bent on a certain worldview and you say, well, here are all the facts and figures backing up, you know, that, that your worldview is wrong, they, they actually double down on their beliefs, and it makes them believe it more strongly because they believe it's under attack. Absolutely emotional. And there is this anecdote about a hospital in the 1800s before the adoption of germ theory, and one wing of the maternity ward, you know, midwives did all the assisting with the birth in that wing, and in the other wing, they had these young, hotshot, you know, white male doctors who assisted with births. And it turns out that the wing with the male doctors had a 40% higher maternal death rate than the one that was operated by the midwives. And when the head doctor at this institution started digging into this, like, this is really weird is because it's men versus women. Like, what, what is the issue? What can, you know, the men learn from the midwives? Were the midwives doing, you know, right that the men are doing wrong? And he had this wild idea after a while, that perhaps these women were getting sick because the young male doctors generally came to visit the maternity ward and work in it right after their anatomy classes. And in those anatomy classes, they were cutting up corpses. And because this was before germ theory, nobody washed their hands between corpse class and the maternity ward. And one would think the numbers would speak for themselves, right? Clearly, the, the young doctors were doing something wrong. Something was wrong and different because 40% higher. But the young doctors were absolutely irate about this. Like, how could this doctor, this head doctor, even imply that these rich pricks were unclean in any way? And it took years to change this practice, even in the face of overwhelming evidence. Because these young, rich white men were horrified at the idea that they were in some way harboring germs, right? Pfft, ridiculous. On their bare hands and murdering their own patients. They, they could not emotionally, psychologically accept that, despite the evidence. Logic does not rule us. Emotion does. 
So the best way to evoke emotion is to tell stories. And here's why. The theory goes that what we call awareness is simply our ability to form stories out of stimuli. This is why most of us don't really have any clear memories until we're two or three years old. We're not truly conscious until we learn how to construct a narrative. And we find ourselves connecting, right, these seemingly random events every day. Like, okay, I was out of milk and I went to the store and my best friend was at the store. She invited me to dinner. And at dinner, I learned about this great new job opportunity for one of the dinner guests. And I got the job. That's where I met my partner. Amazing. The world connects us in mysterious ways. It was fated. It was meant to be. But when you look at all of those events as we have put them together... The only thing that, of course, connects any of these events in any spooky way is you, because you experienced them, you connected them in that way, and you gave them meaning to anyone else viewing from outside and seeing you bump into your friend or another guest at that dinner, and because they're seeing all of the other things around that. There's no through line that they're seeing. There's no story there. Those interactions had little to no meaning. We create the meaning in our own lives. We crave meaning. And in fact, this is why I started blogging back in 2004. I wanted to take all of these events I was experiencing as I traveled in my 20s. I wanted to come into an awareness of who I was after high school and create meaningful narratives out of all of these things that I was doing and that were happening to me. I wanted to understand, what am I learning? What's the point? <laughs> How could I tie all these events that I experienced to my understanding of the greater world? And I actually started my essay writing as long emails to friends after I went to Clarion West. And I would send them these weekly or monthly updates about what I had done or experienced that week in my travels. and. I spun those into narratives, right? Here's here's the, you know, wonderful emotional thing that I understood or experienced. And after that, I, I switched to blogging because I worried that maybe I was spamming their inboxes too much and I was full of myself. <laughs> so I, I switched to blogging platform and I honed my storytelling. And these stories I made about my experiences were telling me who I was. It was creating meaning from all of these random experiences for me. I needed that. And we must create these stories, whether written or spoken or simply these narratives in our heads. Because at its most basic level, our stories are who we are. And they are consciousness. Now remember this, because this is why when you argue with someone's story of the world and the way things are, men do this and women do this, and there are only men and women, and there's only one way to be in capitalism is to be an end all. This is the way it is, is the way it's always been. The reason they defend that story so violently is because they have lived with these stories for so long that attacking them or disassembling them feels like a literal attack on the self, on themselves as a human being, on their consciousness, on the story they have built of themselves and their place in the world. Now, there is a fascinating series of studies, and it presents two groups of students with static images. Now, these are simply random black and white images of what we might call television static, for those who remember that. These are sort of speckled nonsense patterns on a piece of paper. And one group of students is primed to think about a time when they lacked control over a situation. And the other group, the control group, is just asked to write about whatever they want. When both groups are shown these exact same random images, the group that was primed to evoke that feeling of being out of control is more likely to believe that they see patterns in the random noise than the other group does. So why is that? Well, it turns out that when we are fearful or anxious or stressed out, 
And when we feel like we have no control over our lives, we've lost control of our narrative, our brains are more likely to find images in random noise. And that could be correlations in the stock market that just aren't there. That could be seeing conspiracies and unrelated events. That could be developing superstitions. The more out of control we feel, the more we want to assert structure to the universe around us. The story, our story, is the structure. The story is the emotion. And I'm going to tell you something that a lot of folks in conservative circles has known for a very long time. And that is that if you control the narrative, you control the emotion, you control the future. And every time we change the world, and for better or worse, we do it by tapping into primal human emotions. And my day job is in marketing and advertising, so I am especially conscious of this. It pays the big bucks for a good reason. Anti-smoking campaigns were a failure when they first came out. They focused on the harm smokers were doing to themselves, you know, smoking, drinking drugs. Many of us view these vices like as a vacation from our otherwise like exhausted and frustrating lives. So it, those messages really didn't resonate. I mean, you see the messages now like cancer, you know, these cancer sticks cause cancer. Imagine that. And it's just right there on the uh, labeling and people still smoke them. So what actually shifted that conversation in this country, in the U.S., was focusing on what it did to the people around you, especially your own children. And I remember this shift happening in my own household when my father stopped smoking inside. Uh, and it was after these intense messages about how secondhand smoke would harm children, harms your loved ones. It taps into these emotions and literally changes people's behaviors Changing people's behaviors is going to change the world. And fear works super great for that, unfortunately. Fear of harming your children, yes, but also fear of an other, fear of immigrants, fear of your own neighbors, fear of your government, insurance companies and the media and the government. You know, fear is the stick that they love to wield the most because it is so absolutely effective. Fear of death, right? Um, insurance. I, I used to write for insurance companies, so whew, I, I know a lot about the fear. Fear of leaving your loved ones with nothing, like, oh, you know, they will die in, a, in the gutter without you. Fear of losing everything that you worked for, you know, fear of a loss in status. See those a lot too. And what I didn't understand for a long time was what emotion we could use besides fear. To motivate people, I went into marketing and advertising because I knew how to write, first of all, and I understood storytelling. But I continued with it because I also wanted to learn how to change the world with these stories. How do you change people's ingrained behaviors? And advertising teaches the tools of persuasion. It teaches us how to rewire our habits. And this is a great example, uh, toothpaste. Toothpaste has existed for a super long time before it actually became this habit. What advertisers understood was that they needed to provide some sort of trigger that compelled people to brush their teeth. Not only that, but then a pleasant payoff when they did it. Someone said, ah, yes, I have been refreshed. I am healthy. I am powerful, whatever. Again, status, right? And ads invited us to like roll our tongues across our teeth and notice you know, the slimy film that builds up there. And that was supposed to be the trigger to brush our teeth. And they tried that for a long time. But there was no payoff. There was no like, oh, okay, now I know it's clean. I guess, you know, I can go and okay, now there's the slimy film is gone. But there was no like, again, like fresh, freshness, right? You want to feel fresh. You want to feel like you've increased in status and health. So what they did is they added peppermint to the formula. And when they added the peppermint, that was the key. Because they had the trigger, they had the action, and then they had the reward. And it was that you had a nice, fresh, tingling sensation afterward. It made it feel like it was working, right? And it made us feel clean and fresh and healthy and confident going out and into the world. And that a new habit was born. 
a lot of toothpaste is still being sold. And this trick, a trigger, a habit, a reward, and it's generally, again, an emotional one. This is why people like me constantly check Twitter. <laughs> it's why Facebook continues to thrive. People are, are pulling back a little bit, but it's still there. It is because the hit of serotonin we get when we see we have a like, an email, a comment, that all taps directly into our primal pleasure center. And we've seen this formula used well for evil, you know, or at best, nothing super good. But we've also seen it used to reduce rates of drunk driving. The Mothers Against Drunk Driving campaign, where mothers started sharing, you know, the stories of children who'd been killed by drunk drivers, it really humanized what many saw as this individual vice. It's funny, I was reading Dangerous Visions, the Harlan Ellison edited uh, anthology of um, new wave stories from the 60s, I think it was. And it's full of quite a bit of wank. I will talk about that one later. But it was funny because I think it was Larry Niven uh, was talking about how, you know, if you can't even drive home on New Year's Eve anymore without people feeling like you've kicked a puppy or something like that. It was interesting seeing that cultural moment where a behavior that was seen as, oh, we're just driving slightly tipsy, we're driving drunk, where drunk driving had become this horrible, terrible thing. Um, and people were just starting to say, okay, let's change this behavior. This behavior is not okay anymore. Uh, and, and to see sort of his, his pushback. Uh, against that. Oh, people telling me what to do. Well, yes, because, you know, you're more likely to murder other people. And it was like the seatbelt campaigns. It was a very similar approach. And again, seatbelt. It wasn't just to save yourself again. It was to protect your kids. And it was backed up by gory images of crash test dummies and accidents with and without seatbelts. And again, this is your pro tip. Always use, I mean, you don't have to always, but it helps. Use the logic to back up your emotional appeal to something, right? It's your emotion first, trigger that emotion, that pleasure center, and then the bullet point second, because that is how they're going to tell themselves that they are being logical, even though they're acting emotionally. They will use those things to back up their emotional decision. So now we move into this idea is like, okay, that's great, Cameron, uh, people, stories, blah, blah, blah. How do we harness those techniques, right? How do we harness those techniques to promote a better world, a more progressive world, you know, Star Trek future, one where, <laughs> to paraphrase N.K. Jemison, there is no voting on who gets to be human. Well, we do that one story at a time. We do it by embracing change. And by embracing change, I also mean accepting that there are things that need to be changed. I think a lot of people, when they hear that their behavior is problematic, they don't want to interrogate that. They don't want to accept that. And if you will not interrogate that, if you won't admit you're racist or sexist, I am both of those things. I work very hard all of the time to change those behaviors. Because if you cannot acknowledge it, you cannot change it. And we do this also through holding on to and promoting hope. And change is really the only constant in our lives. And Octavia Butler wrote this incredible parable duology about a disintegrating United States. It was kind of, you know, slumping toward authoritarianism. And she built a religion out of this fact. It, it's a really dark duology about the dangers of religious fundamentalism and fanaticism, certainly. And yet, from this darkness, this apocalypse, right, the complete disintegration of everything that was um, known, emerging from the ruins of this, this gutted civilization, a young woman founds a pacifist philosophical and religious order. And it transforms all of those who follow her from those ashes, a savior in even the darkest times, a ray of hope, a glimmer of light, 
and the knowledge that no matter how dark things are, there's a better world on the other side of the darkness. And it's our stories of hope that have really sustained us through all of these periods of darkness. Uh, the, the number of dead people in world wars still sometimes just astonishes me. The number of people who perished in the Civil War in the United States is just mind-blowing. I can't really fathom it. But after those periods, we emerged into brilliant flashes of light. And, you know, someday, maybe someday, that brilliant flash of light will become an actual dawn. And it's stories of hope that made us believe we could fight for marriage equality. And however that shakes out, you know what? We won that one for a while. And I remember an interview with someone who was at the Stonewall Riots, who was being asked if they ever believed that they would see marriage equality in their lifetime. And they were like, ha, 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 absolutely not. Because whatever happens next, right, it's, it's not going to take away from that, that victory. You know, six steps forward, seven steps back. So my mom, she doesn't want to believe so much in hope anymore. And I get that. And that's informed her activism or lack thereof lately. You know, why are these women marching? Like she asked me during the women's march after the election. She's like, oh, like that's going to change everything. Marching for 50 years, really 100 years, 300, 500,000. Well, eating up these stories of despair, okay? Just sitting down with a bottle of wine and believing the world can never change and that fighting for change is hopeless. That is how regressive regimes grind us down. It's how they win. It's hope that helped us make sweeping policy changes that protected the most vulnerable among us and extended the rights of citizenship to all people, no matter who they love. That hope and that future aren't dead. But yeah, they're set back. You know, once again, in that long and ancient war, we have fought and written about as futures and fantasists and dug into and examined as academics and historians. It's really that long war between the light and the dark, between our better selves and our darker natures. And it is our hopeful stories, our ability to tell different futures and look back at the truth of what came before us that is going to sustain us through this darkness as they have in the past, as they will in the years to come. And this is not to minimize what we are facing or what we will face. We won't all survive it. We never do. But it is a reminder, and this I do feel this is important, that there is a future, however dark, to push through to the world on the other side. Each generation has its moment to discover who it really is. And yeah, you know, we have found out who our friends and colleagues are at their very core, and it has shaken many of us. Yes, especially white people like me. But as with every story of war and suffering and hope, and despair, we also find out who the heroes are. And there's a there's a great quote from Umberto Eco, and he says, the real hero is only a hero by mistake. He dreams of being an honest coward like everyone else. And I, I know I sure do. But each of us can be a hero on this timeline in our own way. And we can do it by telling another story, by surfacing another narrative, not one of fear and anger and cruelty, but one of radical kindness and hope that inspires action. All right, so the habit, right? Our trigger, thoughts about the future, our habit, my habit certainly, is telling myself that it's the Robocop future all the way down, I'm not going to survive it, fuck it all. And so the payoff for me, it's, it's always great, the fuck it all future. You're just like, it's nihilism. It's staying in bed, it's drinking too much, it's not caring, it's not putting money in my 401k, fuck it. Okay, yeah, that's, that's all me. But <laughs> what I found is that I needed a different habit to replace how I thought about the future. 
And one whose payoff actually got me out of bed, got me back to work, got me to the gym like a goddamn adult adulting, and spurred me back into action. So the trigger, thinking about the future, the habit, imagining the Star Trek future that could come after this. So I think of it, oh, socialist America, eating the rich, healthcare for all, abolishing ice, no more fucking security theater. And the payoff, I get out of bed and I get to work because getting to that fucking future is going to take fucking work. Because remember, the stories we tell about ourselves create who we are at this fundamental level. They are at the very core of who we become and who we perceive ourselves to be. And that's why those days where we sit around and like berate ourselves about how dumb and worthless we are, that's why those are so dangerous. Because it also means the days we talk ourselves up hold extraordinary promise. So author Steven Erickson, he once described a theory of reality at a panel I was on. It was really cool. And he said his approach to world building was to create several characters and show the world through their eyes. Because in our own lives, reality is this thing at the center of a circle of human observers. And we're all standing around there describing what we see at the center of this circle. Together, we come to this loose consensus about what it is we're looking at. And that's reality. Reality is what we can agree we are looking at. It's the stories we tell as we stand in that circle. We can tell a story of human greed, that our neighbors are out to take all of our shit, or we can tell a story of human compassion and collaboration, that our neighbors actually want to help us, and that kindness is a benefit and not a weakness. And what we choose to write about or speak about or purchase to recommend everything that we ingest and consume or produce, you know, stories about these violent matriarchies or benevolent patriarchies or anarchist utopias, capitalist dystopias, these, no matter what you're writing about, it can't help but take a position on which narrative wins out. You know, it, it says hierarchy is good capitalism is bad, binary gender is natural, bisexuality is natural, or not. Freedom of information is bad, freedom of information leads to terrorism, the state is benevolent, it should be trusted to protect its citizens, the state is corrupt, must be abolished, etc., etc., etc. Every single thing is describing reality as it sees it. So intentional or not, our work, what we write about, whether it's as academics or novelists, it expresses a certain set of values. Sorry. And it's informed by the questions and expectations we have. When I was working on a master's degree, I was actually really shocked to find this document that asserted that 20% of Mkonto Sizwe, which was the militant wing of the African National Congress in South Africa, was composed of women. And I thought that was super astonishing, in part because, you know, like, how many movies or books about resistance, like guerrilla fighters, have we consumed where like one in every five fighters was actually a woman? And I thought, how could this be true if I've never seen it? But there it was, stacked up in the archives like it was no fucking big deal. And that's when I knew I needed to start writing about it because we needed to tell more of those stories. We needed to show it. That was actual reality. So Cal Newport has this book, called So Good They Can't Ignore You. And in it, he argues that some of the world's most happy and successful people, they choose careers which are driven by a personal mission. And these missions don't spring like full formed from their brains when they're like 20 or 30 or 60. Instead, they're like, are these missions that they create and explore and define and refine like in the first you know decade or two of their careers and then continue to refine right until they heal over and they come back to these missions when they feel that they've achieved like a significant goal or a milestone and then they adjust it as necessary because it's this mission that drives them forward 
when the grind and despair and nihilism and all that bullshit gets them down. And as human beings, we do need to believe that our lives have meaning. And that goes back to storytelling. What drives us when we despair? And more often than not, what drives us and makes us get up is our personal mission. And if we don't have one, it can be super easy to get stuck in a rut and lose your focus and purpose and get dragged down by someone else's shitty narrative. And trolling reality, because that's that's what trolling has evolved into, online trolling. It's both a political force, a moneymaker, and it's also a game. Getting people to cry on camera or talk about how afraid they are and leave the internet or stay home and just be silent and fearful or flee their homes altogether, right? You know, sowing confusion and promoting terror. Like, that is the end goal of the trolling game. It inspires a community of professional trolls to keep at it. And fear is the desired result. Public pain and misery triggers the jolt of serotonin that is their reward. Sadists. Habits. You know, that's how it works. And, and okay, I can hear the concern now. All right, so Cameron, I have this helpful narrative. I've constructed it. I reconstruct it. I refine it. I'm speaking up and learning about and writing about better futures. But the trolls aren't just people yelling on the internet. They do bring guns and they send bombs and they plow cars into protests. And I'm like, yes, that is true. They do. Also, I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. I could die of carbon monoxide poisoning in my house. I could be hit by a drunk driver on the street. There are all sorts of things that could happen to me. And all of us have different situations and I completely get that. But... This is what I think whenever I'm invited to speak in an event like Sirens, like the Celsius Festival, whenever I pick up an unknown package on the porch or this sent to my job, I know I could die in a plane. I could die from taking too much insulin. I could go blind soon from complications. One of my aunts actually learned that she had a brain tumor a few years back. And I, she was dead like three months later. And I could have a blood clot or an aneurysm. I could not wake up tomorrow. Death is coming for each and every one of us. Yes, we are all going to die. And yes, I do. I think about getting shot or bombed or swatted or whatever. But that's been my reality as a woman speaking publicly since like 2004 when I started a blog. I mean, so the fuck what? The truth is... It wasn't so much what I was saying that people didn't like. It was that I was allowed to speak publicly at all. As if there was a test one had to pass, a lofty measurement or a set of traits or a bestseller list or a gender requirement. But the alternative for me is to be quiet and to die quietly, hit quietly by a bus. And I don't know about for you, but for me, that just sounds super quiet. And I like being really fucking loud. And I get that everyone's mileage is going to vary. So just remember, do what you can. And as long as you're still here and I'm still here and you're still here and I'm, you know, etc., we win. One of the reasons no one can silence me is not just my profound stubbornness and like indifference in the face of bullshit, nor like my ability to be able to find like the signal and noise. I stay in this game because I get a thousand percent more fan mail than hate mail. I get fan mail of the like, you changed my life variety, right? People who came out to their parents because of something I wrote, folks who found the courage to leave an abusive partner, Folks who moved across the country and followed their dream, changed jobs, went back to school. People read things I write and it gives them hope and inspiration and comfort. Comfort that they're not so different, that they're not alone, 
that the world can be really different. It helps them change their story. And when they can change their story, they can change themselves. And when they can change themselves, they can change the fucking world. And it's that love, that profound love, that's going to keep me here, that will keep me speaking, that will keep me carrying on long after the hate speech has been buried in an explosion of fragmented pixels. Love, radical kindness, a rejection of nihilism. These are the alternative narratives that we have to surface and share. I take storytelling really seriously because I understand that storytelling is how we make sense of the world. It is quite literally how we build the world. What we dream, we create. What we imagine, we make truth. It's how we can share the same world with billions of people and thousands of cultures and yet all see this world and our place in it so differently. Story is also how we can begin to change our own view of the world. And Ursula Le Guin, man, she nailed it in her National Book Award speech. She said, we live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. Resistance and change often begin in art, and very often in our art, the art of words. And yeah, resistance begins not only in art, but also in the passionate pursuit of the truth. The truth that there is no monolithic way to be human now or in the future. That how we organize ourselves has in fact changed significantly for the hundreds of thousands of years that we have been on this planet with these brains, that we don't have to be ruled exclusively by fear because we can be driven by love. And my mom, you know, she she does often apologize to me for the women of her generation after a couple drinks. She's like, you know, we, we thought we changed it all, and but you kids have to deal with this same old shit. And I get it. I do. We all hope for a better future than we probably get. <laughs> but I'm more optimistic than that because what I see is every generation making incremental change, three steps forward, two steps back, five steps forward after that, then six back. Oh, shit. Okay. Get back up. Keep going. Fall down seven times. Get up eight. Nihilism is the greatest enemy of change. Nihilism tells us that we're all going grubbing back into the darkness from whence we came and that nothing we do here matters. Annihilism is what keeps those old abusive systems puttering along. Nihilism convinces us that nothing changes, when in truth, the world is changing all of the time. People like us are just as equipped to change it as anybody fucking else. And as long as we're still here, we're still part of building that narrative. Someone once asked me why I write, and I said, I write to change the world. Like some dude, right? <laughs> like some dude is like, yeah, that did the world. Fucking A. That's not bullshit. I do believe that. You, me, all of us, we are each of us an integral part in a greater whole. So what stories are we telling, right? With our research, our writing, with the thoughts we share, right? Both ours and those we spread across our social and personal channels. Every reality is shaped by story. Greed is good, rich is good, capitalism's good. But I come at this world every day now, and I'm armed with a different story. My story is compassion is good. Kindness is good. Socialism is really fucking good. Looking out for each other is good. And hoarding wealth is fucking obscene. Greed is fucking despicable. Capitalism is a fucking crime against 90% of human beings on this fucking earth. And listen, if you say a thing often enough, loudly enough, and you start to change the narrative all around you that way, take a look at the news, at the talking points. Who is setting the conversation? Who is saying it often enough, loudly enough to get the most airtime? I no longer seek to react to the horror around me. Instead, 
I state boldly that, in fact, no one gets to vote on who is human. Each of us is entitled to good of health. Oh, and food! Yeah, food too. Unions are a public fucking good. Housing is a human right. Higher education should be free. Corporations must be heavily taxed and regulated. And the government should be afraid of the people. People should not be afraid of the government. And I state these truths as things that are absolute. And I state them without apology. I speak my narrative. And I force the wider world to defend itself from a narrative of pure human decency, where each and every one of us has no more or less value on this earth than another. Because the truth is, I can tell you, human beings, yeah, we can create some incredible shit when we work together and we see each other as fully human. We together can create incredible things. We spend so much time fighting the darkness that we forget there's another way to go about it. It's not all about just the fear. Building the future isn't just about fighting the darkness. It's about bringing the light. So bring the fucking light. Radical kindness, empathy, humanity, a positive, progressive vision of the future that inspires action. That is the revolutionary future we can assert, promote, and protect. And yeah, that's how we'll win. Not by just fighting what we hate, but by protecting what we love. Come on, you didn't think I'd get out of here without a Star Wars reference, right? (laughs) Come on, it's me. So while I'm here and you're here for as long as we're blessed to be here, let's go build that future one story at a time. Now go get back to work.